Kia ora, ko Anne O'Brien toku ingoa, he kaiorongi o waituhi o tamaki, no mai, haru mai. I'm Anne O'Brien, Director of the Auckland Writers Festival Waituhi o Tamaki, and you're listening to a session podcast from our 2021 event. Writer, singer, musician and lyricist Amanda Palmer has garnered a vibrant cult following for her creative outputs, which include the New York Times best-selling memoir and manifesto, The Art of Asking. She is supported by a circle of almost 15,000 patrons across the globe who microfund her writing and work through the Patreon platform. Slated to finish up an 80-date international tour of her third solo studio album, The Searingly Stark, There Will Be No Intermission, in Wellington in 2020, she is currently working from the Antipodes. In conversation with writer and friend Catherine Robertson, she canvasses widely around the importance of telling our stories and speaking our truths, writing through grief and discomfort, and the juggle of Fano, community and expression, and offers up some ukulele interludes. We hope you enjoy it. Kia ora. In my mind, in a future five years from now, I'm a hundred and twenty pounds And I never get hungover Because I will be the picture of discipline Never minding what state I'm in And I will be someone I admire And it's funny how I imagined that I would be that person now but it does not seem to have happened maybe I've just forgotten how to see that I'm not exactly the person that I thought I'd be And in my mind, in the far away here and now, I've become in control somehow. And I never lose my wallet, because I will be the picture of discipline, never fucking up anything. And I'll be a good defensive driver And it's funny how I imagined That I would be that person now But it does not seem to have happened Maybe I've just forgotten how To see That I'll never be the person that I want to be And in my mind When I'm old I am beautiful Planting tulips and vegetables Which I will mindfully watch over Not like me now 
I'm so busy with everything that I don't look at anything but I'm sure I'll look when I am older and it's funny how I imagined that I would be that person now but that's not what I want if that's what I wanted then I'd be giving up somehow how strange to see that I don't want to be the person that I want to be and in my mind I imagine so many things things that aren't really happening and when they put me in the ground I'll start pounding the lid saying I haven't finished yet I still have a tattoo to get that says I'm living in the moment it's funny how I imagined that I would win this winless fight But maybe it really isn't funny that I've been fighting all my life But maybe I have to think it's funny if I want to live before I die And maybe it's funniest of all to think I'll die before I actually see That I am exactly the person that I want to be You know, that song always makes me cry. Good. Yeah, I figured. I figured that was the right response. Goodness. Right. Hi. Hello. Gosh, it's been... So you've been in New Zealand for 14 months now. I know. Yep. It's been quite a tough time. I mean, you know, your marriage imploded. You were a small, sole parent of your small child for some months and you had to make a home for you both, you know, in a place that you barely knew anybody. Uh, COVID really took a dent, you know, smashed your ability to run your business and to earn your money in the way that you do. Uh, you were far away from family and friends in countries that weren't perhaps managing COVID as well as we were here. This is all sounding bad, isn't it? Yep. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but that's it, and, you know, and it was, it's been a tough time, but like, one thing I noticed is that the media coverage, though focused entirely on kind of your accidental arrival in New Zealand, how do you find it, by the way, um, and uh, your marriage and like sort of, I suppose, your notoriety and occasionally your music and that's it. And I don't think we got a full picture of Amanda Palmer in the round. And one of the things that they didn't talk about was that you are an extremely successful businesswoman. 
Um, and you had to, while doing all of that, keep Amanda Palmer afloat. So do you want to talk to me a bit about how you managed to do that with a four-year-old and a phone in a foreign country? Um, sure. <laughs> Thanks for asking. Um, well, first, I actually want to make uh, a, just a, an offer or a request. If you're way, it's such a long room, if you're way, way, way on the sides and you can't see and you're comfortable on the floor, you're free to come and join these people in the front and just sit here. There's space if you're like, yeah, I mean, don't, if you all come. Well, actually, you can all come. Okay. We've got a lot of space up here. Um, and it'll be cozy because we all, well, then we can fill in this giant gulf this, um, what do you call it? The moat of silence. Awesome. Um, uh, so, I'm, I'm, ha I'm very happy to answer that question. Mm. One of the weird things about being me is that um, when people talk about me, especially in the media, um, they usually don't talk about me as an artist. Mm and what I've accomplished artistically. And actually, especially after I did my Kickstarter in 2012, I actually got quite frustrated that when I would be discussed or when there would be media coverage, it was actually exclusively about my business, uh, you know, the aspects of me as a businesswoman and me as a crowdfunder and me as the person who left my major label. And I was, you know, I was so enthralled by that because it was like, oh, you know, yes, I'm really good at this. I'm smart. I, I've figured all this stuff out. That I, I think I actually screwed myself a little bit because once again, you know, no one was discussing the fact that, like, the reason that all happened is because I wrote songs mm -hmm. and some of them were good. Mm -hmm. And without that, nothing. And um, it's something that Neil and I have discussed a lot. Like, when the media discusses him, they usually discuss his work. Yeah. And we could also maybe point out that um, he's a man. Mm. <laughs> and so, and I think even kind journalists are like, let's discuss Amanda Palmer. She's a mother, she's a businesswoman. And then it's like, you get to the end of the article and it's like, oh, they never even got to the fact that she makes work. Mm. She's an artist. Um, and, you know, there have been parts, there, there have been eras of my life where I try to push back against that and I just feel like I always fail. So I've just kind of given up. It's like you can, you're, you know, the, the media can discuss me however they want. If all you want to do is talk about the businesswoman or the mother or the controversial figure, I'm like, that's your job. Part of the way that I have survived as a business person is to just go further and further off grid Hmm. away from that discussion, the world's discussion of me, because it's never going to work anyway. And to bring the people who do understand the work to a place that's far away from that place where we can just do the work. Yeah. And that's actually, I mean, if I'm going to explain how I've managed in a nutshell, it's through patronage, which is finally using the internet, which was always capable of doing this, and finally... Um, you know, once everyone's sort of got the gist of Kickstarter, we've finally gotten to a place on the internet where I can go straight to my community and say, fuck all that, 
let's go over here. I'm an artist. I want to make art. I want to make a living. Can you pay me? They go, yeah. And I go, great. Then we don't need any of that mm, mm. anymore. We don't need to go through that factory. We can all just leave that building and go over here where it's just about the work. So, I mean, you were a pioneer of that, but it still seems to me that that you, just you saying that sounds quite radical and that that's still not the norm. People do not think about no, that their audiences exist in a way that you can reach them directly. Especially in this country. Um, and one of the things that has been really fascinating about touring for the last 10 years, because my... Um, so in 2012, for those, some of you who might not know, in 2012, I did a big Kickstarter um, for a tour. Um, it was mostly a Kickstarter for an album, but it included the tour and a book that came along with the album. Um, and that Kickstarter remains the biggest music Kickstarter to date. It raised $1.2 million of album pre-orders. Mm -hmm. um, well, it also fucked up my life, so don't apply that. <laughs> Um, it, but it started a really interesting era of my career as a, as a, you know, as a business person in the art world. Um, but the, you know, the, the freedom that I found in doing that was intoxicating. And then I started touring the world. Um, because it's one thing, it was one thing to be an American doing a Kickstarter, and I noticed that a lot of the supporters came from Australia, New Zealand, South Africa, Japan, wherever. But then I traveled, and, um, and one of the things that I found fascinating is how different cultures reacted to and felt about artists asking directly for help without going through the government or through the publisher or through the major label, you know. And different cultures are, are very, <laughs> I am a writer, I swear. Different cultures are different. <laughs> um, I mean, the way crowdfunding was thought of and uh, quite frankly frowned upon in Germany had a lot to do with how Germany feels about its artistic culture, its lineage, and who should be paying for what, how, and when, and who should be asking for what, how, and when. And so since coming here a year ago, one of the things that I've been doing is sitting back and talking to all of the musicians that I meet, and the writers, and you, mm. and Reb Fountain, and Delaney Davidson, and you know Nadia Reed, and all these people, and, and Conan Marcus, and just saying like, What's it like here? How, how does this work? And this is not a culture that has quite adopted um, a system of independence for artists. It, okay? <laughs> um, but which is not to say that America has it on lock um, or that any country has figured it out but it hasn't happened here yet. Do you think that is to do with our culture? Because, you know, there was a question at your um, uh, session last night about the tall poppy syndrome. But I think also, is there is perhaps New Zealand, because we were a small place, there's always sort of a sense of scarcity. Um, and that, so if somebody feels like if I get more, then somebody has to get less. 
and you know, from The Art of Asking, which is a fantastic book, you should all read it, um, is effectively talking about that you shouldn't think of it that way. You know, you're going into a whole different relationship with your audience. It's not a cap and hand thing. Do you want to talk about the distinctions that you make? Oh, well, I mean, I got an incredible amount of unexpected to me, unexpected blowback around my Kickstarter. And I write about this a lot in the book. I came from a lineage of um, punk rock and DIY and folk where it was really all about like, let's get together and do the thing. And everyone helps out, you know? And it, it like a very sort of like, I'm just trying to think of a good Kiwi way of saying it. like. Throw up a show, bring a plate, like just yeah. let's just let's just make this shit happen, and it's and, um, and so I was really shocked and astounded to find that my philosophy around money, help, and asking was considered at odds with the mainstream, because I went out to you know I went out I did this giant Kickstarter I figured that everyone in the music industry would be like hooray for you. And your amazing community of supportive, nice, smart people. And that is not what fucking happened. <laughs> I was lambasted. I was punished. I was taunted. And I was, um, I was excised for daring to, um, to ask. And most musicians who criticized me just said, yeah, we don't do that, Amanda. Don't fuck it up. Like, we don't do it that way. You're making us all look bad. We don't beg for money from our communities. We're artists. And I was like, well, I'm not, I don't feel like I'm begging. I feel like I'm asking. I feel like it's actually quite civil. Instead of going to the cock-sucking label guy in the suit who's sitting there in the boardroom trying to convince him to be a middleman on behalf of my artistic offering. Like, this actually feels a lot more civilized. Am I right? And the answer was, no, you're very wrong and we all agree that you're wrong and go away. And so I did. And I, you know, one of the other things that I learned from my Kickstarter, you know, experience was I shouted about my Kickstarter and my community and the awesomeness of all of it from the rooftops, expecting a big pat on the head from the very industry that m my move was dismantling. That was stupid. <laughs> I, you know, it's sort of like expecting a pat on the head from the patriarchy as you're marching down the street burning your bra. Like, <laughs> they're not gonna be like, yay, go guys. So. With my Patreon, which has now been going six years, I just haven't really talked about it. I've just got on with it, off to the side. And then occasionally I'll come to a writer's festival and very happily, like, openly discuss it. But the music industry still doesn't really want to hear it. But you're saying it's the musicians as well that are pushing back against it because, and I mean, you know, in this book as well, you make some distinctions around what's at the root of hate and you do say simply that hate is fear. So what do you think they're afraid of? Well, there's actually, 
I think there's been a lot of progress just in terms of crowdfunding. There was a stigma around crowdfunding in 2010, 11, 12 that I don't think quite exists anymore. I mean, back in 2000, you know, 2011, um, I mean, I would tweet about my Kickstarter and literally see comments you know, saying, can you stop begging for money, mm. art, comma, artist, bad woman, person. Um, and that doesn't happen anymore. I think crowdfunding in general has become normalized enough that the, the hoi polloi have just sort of realized it's a losing battle to, to try and insult or criticize an artist who's out there asking for help. I still see it occasionally, but not like I did 10 years ago. Um, you know, that being said, it, it doesn't mean that it has been completely adopted by all artists and musicians. And what it generally comes down to is fear. To go directly to an audience, you know, a readership, a population, and say, hey, can, can you directly help me, the artist? It's very frightening. It's really frightening. Because... They might say they no. might say no, and you're rejected, and you're a terrible person. Yeah, yeah. Well, and, and, you're, and your art of. doesn't matter to them, and you have to be able to withstand that person saying no. And when you're going through a publisher or through a label or through a filter, they ask on your behalf. They also take all your money, <laughs> and don't necessarily ask very well, um, and. One of the other things that I've learned is that this system is not for every artist. I wouldn't recommend it for every writer, every musician, every dancer, you know, creator. Definitely not. But I think it's on offer for, and, and probably would work out quite well for many who are just too afraid to, to take that step. One of the key things that you do point out is that before you went to your Kickstarter, you did have a following and you had been engaging on the internet with them, with your community, regularly and openly and you know honestly with them for some considerable time. So you had built them up and built them up to, to trust you and to know you. And so what would you say to an artist who perhaps is, wants to go down this route but is perhaps starting out and hasn't got that community yet? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's no different than any other career trajectory. So that question, in a sense, isn't any different from what do you tell a young musician who's trying to gig and get people to their gigs. It's, it's all sort of the same. You have to start somewhere and you have to somehow build a community using whatever you've got. And that means if you're a writer, you have to write. And you have to be good at it, and you have to find readers, and you have to convince people that your writing is good and make them want more. If you're a musician, you have to gig. Um, and you have to take every shitty, non-paying gig that is offered to you, even if you're pl playing to three people who aren't listening. and. You know, there is no, I don't think there is a, a magic way around paying your dues and just doing the groundwork that every successful artist I know has had to do, which is, you, you know, you have to do a lot of slog before you find an audience. Mm -hmm. And I mean, that was one thing that really astounded me 
um, the year of Kickstarter, truly intelligent artists and musicians, you know, who were just in the beginning phases of their career, thought that Kickstarter or using Kickstarter, creating a Kickstarter campaign would manifest some magical money paying audience. And I was like, where do you think these magical people are going to come from just because you put up a Kickstarter page? Like it's a tool to use to ask for money from the people who are there. But if there are no people there, your Kickstarter will fail because <laughs> there won't be any people there who want to give you money. So, and I, and I had to explain that so many times that Kickstarter wasn't a magical money tree, that it was a tool. Um, sort of like, you know, it's not like when you get a credit card, all of a sudden you are rich. <laughs> yeah. That's not the way it works. Um, so yeah, I mean, it, like I've spent years and years and years and years thinking about this. And I mean, even to this day, my Patreon, I mean, I know I have a bunch of patrons in the audience today. They know and understand something about how I work that the industry never will mm. because the industry is not clocking it. They're not reading my posts. They're not paying attention. They're not following along. But what's happening is extraordinary. Like the community that exists and that inhabits my Patreon and the blog and the forums and the discussions is an incredible group of people. And I am able to publish an essay, put out an album, put out a podcast, record this talk professionally with a bunch of cameras and take their money and do whatever I want without asking permission from anybody. Mm. Mm. And it's mm. incredible. And I just sort of quietly go about it. And it's been, it's, it, it feels revolutionary. I don't know any other artists who are doing this. But that's an interesting thing you're saying, you're not asking permission, but your patrons um, and your fans are still supporting you because clearly you are giving them something in return. And I think some people maybe look at the crowdfunding as if, oh, I'm getting money, I'm just getting money. There's like a one-way traffic sort of thing. Whereas you are giving back. But what else do you think that people get out of the relationship? You know, what, what do your patrons want from the relationship with you? Well, I think, there's, I think there's three fundamental things. One is they just want to support this artist, human, person. Um, and I've been working, I have been a working, touring, recording artist for 20 some odd years. Mm -hmm. I have a track record. And, you know, and the record will show that for 20 years I have been, you know, I've gone in all sorts of directions and done all sorts of weird side projects, but I'm a pretty reliable artist. I'm not gonna all of a sudden be like, I'm not gonna talk to you guys for two years and here's some techno. Like, <laughs> or if I did, it would have to be really interesting with a good backstory. <laughs> um, and so in a, in, a, in a strange way, although I am like my work is very eclectic, it's also weirdly reliable. Like I'm going on a journey as an artist, you know, a multimedia artist. I've written a book, I've made lots of music, I make film, I do all sorts of things. But, you know, the audience that support me on Patreon are like, we just want to support you, mm. your artistic journey. We're there. 
we're in. It's sort of like supporting, you know, a museum where you don't know what they're going to show or what kind of events they're going to put on, but you're in. You want this cultural structure to exist and hold whatever it's going to hold. That's one part of it. Another part of it is just the content itself. It's convenient to get stuff to your inbox. Um, you know, we take so much of that for granted, but I grew up in an era where, you know, the bands and the musicians, the songwriters that I felt deeply connected to, I had to like get on a bus, get on a subway, <laughs> go to a basement, flip through a bin and look for an import. And that's, you know, and now I can just g give it to you. I can give you my work mm -hmm. using the internet. And then the third thing is like, it's a community. You know, I have people who've met through my community who get married, have children, find each other, support each other, call each other in the middle of the night. Like, it's that's real. And, you know, as someone who grew up as a hardcore music fan, who deeply craved a sense of belonging, mm. I get that. That, like, you know, for for a lot of people, a band, a musician, an umbrella under which you stand, whether it's me or Neil Gaiman or Alan Moore or PJ Harvey or Nick Cave or whoever it is, that's your place. Like, I mean, like, that's your mountain. Mm. That's your river if you didn't have one. You could almost say, like, these are my people. These people standing under the Nick Cave umbrella, they get me, I get them. This is my community. And the Dres you know, and that began with the beginning of my band, the Dresden Dolls. Mm -hmm. It was about so much more than the music. It was about the fact that we created an extended family. And if you came to the shows, you were with your family. Mm -hmm. Especially because a lot of us we weren't getting what we needed at home. We had to figure it out outside home, and music was the was the destination. So where do you draw the line in your interactions, if you do at all? Do you have people ringing you in the middle of the night and saying, I'm having terrible thoughts, etc.? I mean, how do you deal when there is a crisis in this community? Um, crazy things have happened. Um, I usually don't give people my phone number, <laughs> but, um, that's actually not true. I mean, I've given a lot of people my phone number, but they usually don't call, they text mm. or they email. And I have been, I mean, I, I have, I've seen everything. I've been at the dying bedside of my fans and played them ukulele in their, you know, in their last hours. Like, it's, it's real. Yeah. And um, that stuff is hard to explain to people who have never moved through that sort of music community, mm. that it isn't bullshit. And, you know, I can't be all things to all people. But it always goes in waves. I mean, just in the last few weeks, I have um, a, a fan in South Africa whose university library just burned. And, mm -hmm. you know, I have fans who, you know, they come out and are 
banished from their families and they reach out to me and I can't call and talk to them for three hours, but I can DM them or text them for a couple weeks and check in on them. And especially last year, I mean, I didn't wind up doing the, the show that I was meant to do um, here in New Zealand, but I did, you know, I, I did the There Will Be No Intermission tour. It was a four hour show about abortion and miscarriage and childbirth. And a lot of stories came back to me and still do. And so I hold the hands of the, you know, the women who are dealing with a stillborn child or an abortion they can't tell their family about or this or that, the other thing. And I love it. Yeah. I love being able to, to be there for people when I'm able. And sometimes I have to like shut the phone off and be like, yeah, I can't, I'm, I'm too overwhelmed in my own life. I have to deal with my child, my own shit show, my own relationship. But they're very accepting of that, having looked at your posts and things. If you say, I need some time out or I'm going on a retreat, everybody goes, cool, you do you. They're very accepting. Totally. And I think that's a function of having been in a long-term relationship with this community for mm -hmm. 20 years. Um, it's There's a give and take. Mm -hmm. And... Interestingly, it was in the early years of the Dresden Dolls that I had the more like crazy, frightening, punishing, um, very, very, very needy people sort of coming to me and overwhelming me and I didn't know how to deal. Mm -hmm. And um, that doesn't happen very much anymore. You know, I think we've all grown up together and I'm now 45, so I've been through a lot, seen a lot, done a lot, dealt with almost every human situation. And, you know, I think a freaked out suicidal 24 year old knows that if they come to me, they're, they're not gonna scare me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And also if they, if they come to me with the wrong approach, they won't get what they need. Mm -hmm. Like I've smartened up a lot and I, you know, I'm not, I'm not stupid enough to think that I can take care of everyone anymore. Yeah, and I think you're a very clear communicator, so people understand how you work, you know, and how this community works. I was going to, I was interested in what you said, you know, you could make art without asking for permission. So when you have that entire blank canvas, how do you decide what art you are going to make? Well, the flip side of not having to ask for permission or get permission, one of the things that I found so infuriating about being on a major label um, it wasn't that I had to ask for permission I, you know I was making the work I was touring the Dresden Dolls clearly I was writing the stuff I was writing but you know then we had to get permission mm -hmm. to make what we wanted to make and use the artwork we wanted to use and make the fund the videos we wanted to make and it was just like brick wall after brick wall and I was I was so confused. I was like, why would this label sign us if they didn't get that why we're popular is because we're doing this, we're artists. We know how to do this. Like, leave us alone to make the art, Steve, um, <laughs> Dave. Uh, and, and one of the things that I didn't really understand back then that I do now um, is that 
I'm not the kind of artist who thinks that there's some kind of like pure untouchable offering within me that like comes out and then you just have to deal with it. I actually think it's the opposite. The longer I've been around and the more people I have met and the more stories I have heard and the more of humanity I have touched, the, the more I understand what is needed and the more I have come to understand that it's not that I have some you know, internal like art machine that's gonna spit out something delightful. The, the more I think that being an artist is a, it's a service position. And the more you can move through the world and look at everybody, the more you will understand how to be of service to the people out there who want and need the nourishment of an artistic offering, whether it's a novel or a song or a piece of art on, on the wall. And m maybe that's just me and maybe that's nuts and maybe there are artists out there that are just like, there's me and then there's humanity and we don't really have that much to do with each other and here's my offering. But mm. I, I really think that, you know, in terms of permission, I get permission from my patrons by, by virtue of the fact that they're there. Like they're funding me, their $10, their $50, their dollar, whatever they're giving me is sort of like the stamp of approval saying like, we wanna hear what you have to say, go for it. What do you got? Um, and I want, it's not that I want to pander to them or like even make them happy. Like a lot of my art does not make people happy. Maybe at some level, you know, a lot of my art makes them cry yeah. a lot. But, but I feel like I am making it for them. Yeah. Mm. And this last album that I just finished touring felt like the first album that I had ever made that I wasn't making for some imaginary group of people who would hopefully like it and give me a five-star review. A focus group. Yeah, well, yeah. like, all of humanity, pretty please, hopefully this will be the album that everyone will love. And this album I made knowing that it already had an audience waiting for it and I couldn't wait for them to hear it mm. because I loved it. I believed in every song and I put it out and somewhere, you know, maybe not in the back of my mind, but somewhere off to the side was, and then there's the media. Yeah. Maybe they'll like it, but it doesn't matter. And that was the, I mean, it took me until my forties to get to that point. And then I also had to like confront the fact that for all of my, you know, career up until then, it was like, well, you know, the community, hopefully they'll love this, but like maybe the real people out there and the journalists and, you know, the rest of humanity will finally see how amazing I am and they'll love this. And it was like, yeah, fuck that. Like, I've finally really found my, my solid ground and did not have any sort of like commercial, you know, pleasing... Yeah idea in mm. my mind. It really was just like, this is the work. 
and it's the best it's the best I have to offer right now and I can't wait to give it to the people who paid for it because that you know I'm thinking about how we judge success and for you to get to a space where you are so happy with your audience and that relationship and the art that you can do as a result of that relationship seems absolutely wonderful to me. And how how do we sort of... I mean, you know, not all young musicians who come out of here are going to be Lord, you know, and not all writers um, are going to win the Booker Prize. And how... I mean, you said you've taken you a few years to get to this point, but do you have any advice for helping people be comfortable with what they, you know, the success that they may get to, the level they get to? Um, yeah, I think, I mean, I think this is something that every artist I know has struggled with. Mm. Everybody. And, um, you know, I grew, I was born in 1976. I was young in the early 80s and I was like, you know, I was raised on a steady diet of MTV. And I think about that a lot, about what I thought, where I thought I would have to get to consider myself successful, you know, when I was 12 or 15 or even 20. And there was really only one bar of success, and it was Madonna. <laughs> and I was like, God, wow, I'm going to have to do that. Like, that's so far away, but like, oh, okay, here we go. I wonder if I'll make it. <laughs> and it was far away. Um, and, you know, and then I really started to understand and synthesize, especially because, you know, it's, as I grew older, and I think I probably started to understand this maybe in my late teens and early 20s, but a lot of the musicians that I admired the most, you know, I loved Madonna when I was 12, but by the time I was 14, I loved Nick Cave and The Cure, and by the time I was 16 and 17, I loved Edward Caspell and the legendary Pink Dots, and you know, they were selling 200 tickets when they toured through Boston. But to me, they were still as iconic and as untouchably giant and magical um, as, you know, as Prince. And that, I think that made an impression on me. And, I, and especially when the Dresden Dolls started touring, I had to tease out what success meant and felt like. And certainly, like, as I've gotten older and older and looked at the arcs of these careers and these human beings who have had these careers and whether or not they appear actually happy, mm -hmm. it does not look like it looked when I was staring at them, on, you know, at the altar of MTV when I was 12. Um, in fact, a lot of it now looks very backwards. And the happiest musicians I know are the ones who do not have to deal with superstardom. And some of the superstars that I've met are some of the unhappiest people I've met. Um, so right-sizing success is like, I think it's a very hard thing to explain to a teenager, especially when they are fed a steady diet 
of what success means. And nowadays it's even weirder because nowadays it isn't even just about Michael Jackson level scale. It's about corporate capital yeah. commercialism and success looks like, you know, a brand endorsement or, you know, a certain number of social media followers or whatever. And again, you know, success as an artist should look like, uh, you know, are you within a community of people who are able to support your existence and are you all feeling nourished by the exchange mm -hmm. or something like that? Um, and, you know, it, you say that to a younger artist and there's their eyes sort of spin um, because that's not the narrative that they are generally fed. No. You know, that like you can actually be a very successful artist without a lot of stuff or a lot of followers or a lot of corporate sponsors or a lot of this, that, or the other thing. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you also have to just really want to do, again, like you have to want to do the slog. And, you know, certainly not there, you know, we don't have room for 500,000 lords, but that's also because there are not that many music listeners and concert ticket buyers. And, you know, there's always n never going to be a space for a billion artists to make a living, but it also has to do with how the culture, the community, the audience values having art, period, in your country, in your community, in your town hall. And will you spend money on an artist? Will you spend money to support them live? Will you spend money to buy their book? Will you spend money to support them through crowdfunding? And you know, if a lot of people will support a lot of art, you can support a lot of artists. But it has to be a cultural decision that everyone sort of hops on board with. And yeah, it has to be, it, it, we do sort of seem to wait for the system to change, don't we? For Creative New Zealand to suddenly decide to give us a billion dollars instead of $3.50. And for the government to finally prioritize art over sport, etc. Um, but we are the system, we are the people. So You are, I mean, yeah. and, and that's the thing I will always just like try and look at people and remind you is like, this happens, this succeeds in a culture because a bunch of people decide to just spend a little bit of energy looking around and saying like, oh, maybe I should support the artists who literally live in my neighborhood and are in my town and are, you know, doing shows and selling merch and starting crowd funds. And, Indeed, it takes effort. The government does not do it for you. You have to actually sit down and say, ah, you know, as, as you would spend time and attention on a relationship or on a child or on your garden or on whatever you decide to give time and attention, you decide to give a little bit of time and attention to the artists that you can directly help because Creative New Zealand is not gonna do it for you. And I think there's also something about America, like. We don't get grants in America. You know, it was so astounding to me when I first came to New Zealand and Australia and I would meet musicians and artists who were talking about this, that, or the other grant. And I was like, you guys have gr like real money that the government gives you? And they were like, yeah. And I was like, we don't have that. Which might explain why crowdfunding w was adopted much more quickly and easily in America because there was no alternative. Um, you can't get a grant 
uh, in America if you're an artist. There's just no pool of money to draw from. Amazing, because I mean, I think we have had a model of it over COVID because, you know, magazines shut down, um, musicians couldn't tour and make money, venues couldn't survive. And there was this amazing groundswell of support for people even just giving a few dollars to their local businesses and their local artists. So we have proof that it works and people, you know, the media landscape has changed probably forever and for the better, I'd say, with independent people. And so we can do it. It is about perhaps just giving ourselves that reassurance, I mean, the distinction that you make in the book about, like, asking without shame is collaboration, you know, and we have to see that relationship and that collaborative sense. And you've always seen it as a collaboration. Yeah, well, once you have an entire ecosystem that adopts a mentality like this, everything yeah. is lifted. And a lot more can flourish because there's a much more fertile ground for projects to happen and albums to be made and recording studios to spring up and then venues to happen and then all of a sudden you've got people saying like I'm not going to sit home and watch Netflix tonight like let's go to the new venue and mm. see who's playing um, and you know and culture is always like that it's always cyclical but you do need a you didn't you, you know you need a whole ecosystem to you need the groundswell yeah yeah and I mean I would hope that especially given what has just happened here with COVID and with the possible like influx of interest and in people into this country, that it's a really ripe moment for that. Mm, mm. And I think probably I should ask you about though COVID, you know, has filled us all with an existential dread <laughs> as well, which isn't Hooray! great for the creative sort of juices, is it? So, and yet you've had to do this, you know, and especially, I mean, it has been a really tough time for you and you have remained creative throughout. So how, how have you done that? I don't think I have. You haven't? Um, well, I, okay, let me clarify I want you to that. tell me something positive. <laughs> no, <laughs> I will tell you something positive. I have not been actively writing very much. I haven't been actively recording very much in the last year. Um, and for the first time in my life, I feel like that is absolutely appropriate. Like I, I, I struggled for a little bit at the beginning, especially after lockdown. And I thought, oh, like there's so much to synthesize and so much to say and so many things. And like, and here I am in this new country and I need to find the people and maybe I should go on tour, but I've, I've got Ash and I'm on my own. And I was just frantic. And I finally gave myself permission to just sit back and be like, no, not right now. Like, your job right now is to slow down, be still, recover, um, and take care of your five-year-old and synthesize on your own time because there will be a moment after this where you can make the work and say what you need to say. But right now... Um, you know, I, I, I feel like I'm still driving a car at 60 miles an hour and it's not the time to stop and take notes. Mm -hmm. And I mean, we are in for a real reckoning 
um, I've been in touch every day with my friends in the States and nobody really understands what has happened. Everyone's just in shock. Like not even aftershock, like everyone is just in, it just paralytic practically and including most of my artist friends. And the, um, you know, the understanding between all of us seems to be, this is not the time to punish ourselves for not creating wonderful existential offerings out of the, you know, fertility of the pandemic. It's like, <laughs> hell no. We're all exhausted. Mm, mm. And, um, and especially if you're a parent, like you're extra, extra exhausted just from the stress and the worry and the unpredictability. Um, and I cannot wait to see what happens. I, you know, I... I don't know if we are going to have a, like a roaring 20s, mm. but we might, you know, if, if we do it right, and especially if the audience is able, especially in America, to get over its anxiety quickly enough to fill the, you know, the container that will catch the art, mm. whether that means physically or financially or whatever, um, we have a lot to work through. And art especially live arts, is going to be the salve and the balm that heals a lot of this trauma. Mm -hmm. And it's weird because I don't know about this country and how it's going to deal with the aftermath of COVID and how different it will feel. Um, but certainly in America, it's going to be really weird. Because I'm talking to people right now this week who are like, I just don't want to go out. And I can, I'm vaccinated. And they're too panicked and too anxious and too, um, just too traumatized to even go out. It's not gonna be fast. It's gonna be a really strange re-entry. Well, we just did two months of the full lockdown and then all had to learn how to touch each other and hug each other again. It was very strange. So imagine- And how many months, yeah. yeah. I have someone on my staff who has practically not left her one-bedroom apartment for 14 months. Aye. Um, Aye. And I don't think we can fathom what that feels like. No. We can only kind of dare imagine, and I don't think we could possibly go there in our heads. No. Um, I think on that note... We're not going to do Q&A, but you are more than welcome to talk to Amanda at the signing, which is happening afterwards. You just go out and up the little stairs and the signing table's just there. You're going to sign for three hours, like Neil, he was still going. Neil is still signing. That was... <laughs> it's been a um, running joke. Every time Zan and I walk through the foyer, I'm like, and Neil Gaiman is still, still signing. signing. <laughs> um, yeah, what will be humiliating is if my signing ends before his signing. <laughs> So let's go very slowly. <laughs> Have a big chat, many questions. I think another ukulele interlude. Do yeah. you feel... Well, do you have any more questions? I think I've covered most of the big ones that I wanted to cover. 
and I think we need something to go out on. I mean, this is almost the grim. end of the. Well, yeah, we need we need that, but we need ukulele because it makes everything better. Let's do it. Do um, it. Thank you for. Being thank my you. Chair. Well, we'll say we'll wrap it up now before the solo. Um, but I just want to thank you so much, Amanda, for being here and being honest and being available to do this for us because, I mean, I think we're very privileged. I've said about the signing, we're all good. Take it away. All right. Um, one thing that I am actually surprised you didn't ask is, because it's the question everyone keeps asking is, um, are you staying in New Zealand? Well, I'm here, not leaving anytime soon. Um, I just had a really wonderful um, gathering in the library um, with a handful of my patrons, and uh, it was really fun. I made up a game called Oracular Library. Um, how many of my patrons made it over to the gig, by the way? Can you raise your hand? So yeah, a lot of these people were at the library, and we uh, people asked, wrote down a question, uh, got into pairs, and then one half of the pair closed their eyes and uh, steered the other person through the library, stopped at a random book, pulled the book off the shelf, and then the book gave the answer to the question. It was totally surreal and didn't really work, but it was fun. Um, can I get a little less ukulele in the monitor? It's really loud. So yeah, and we started talking about it at the, at the library, and the answer is, I do not know. Um, I feel like I'm standing on a very strange, uh, precipice of, um, you know, whatever the future is going to hold for me, and especially Ash, our five-year-old. And um, it's, it feels really strange not knowing when, when or if or how I'm going to go home. You guys have been really nice to us, though. Um, and actually doing this event and doing the event last night um, changed something for us, I think, that we, that we hoped it would, because we've just been, you know, we're foreigners. We're, it's, it, we've, it's felt, you know, lonely. But this, is, this just makes me feel less lonely. Yeah. It's nice. Um, so at the, at the signing, I'm also gonna, I don't know where Zan is, but I'll send a clipboard down the line and if you're not on the mailing list, please do be because especially in Auckland, I'm gonna start, now that I'm living on Waiheke, I'm gonna start hopefully doing some more fun things. Um, and I would also uh, ask, please join the Patreon, even if it's just for a dollar. Um, it's fun. And then you can also become a Patreon proselytizer and soon New Zealand will be all crowdfunded and you won't need a government anymore and fuck capitalism and all that.
Sid Vicious played a four-string Fender bass guitar and couldn't sing, and everybody hated him except the ones who loved him. A ukulele has four strings, but Sid did not play ukulele. He did smack and probably killed his girlfriend, Nancy Spongen. If only Sid had had a ukulele, maybe he would have been happy. Maybe he would not have suffered such a sad end. He maybe would have not done all that heroin. Instead, he maybe would have sat around just singing nice songs to his girlfriend. So play your favorite cover song, especially if the words are wrong. Cause even if your grades are bad, it doesn't mean you're failing. Do your homework with a fork and eat your Fruit Loops in the dark and bring your Etch-a-Sketch to work and play your ukulele. Ukulele, brave and peaceful. Ukulele, strong and simple. You can play the ukulele too. It is painfully simple. Play your ukulele badly. Play your ukulele loudly. Ukulele, banish evil. Ukulele, save the people. Ukulele, gleaming golden from the top of every steeple. Lizzie Borden took an axe and gave her mother 40 wax and gave her father 41. It left a tragic puzzle. If only they had given her an instrument. Those Puritans had lost the plot completely. See what happens when you muzzle a person's creativity. And do not let them sing and scream. And nowadays it's worse, cause kids have automatic handguns. It takes about an hour to teach someone to play the ukulele. About the same to teach someone to build a standard pipe bomb. So play your favorite cover song, especially if the words are wrong. Cause even if your grades are bad, it doesn't mean you're failing. Do your homework with a fork and eat your Fruit Loops in the dark and bring your flask of Jack to work and play your ukulele. Ukulele, thing of wonder. Ukulele, wand of thunder. You can play the ukulele too in London and down under. Play and sink and play Jacques Brel and Eminem and Neutral Milko. Tell the children, crush the hatred. Play your ukulele naked. If anybody tries to steal your ukulele, let them take it. Imagine there's no music. Imagine there are no songs. Imagine that John Lennon wasn't shot in front of his apartment. Now imagine if John Lennon had composed Imagine for the ukulele. Maybe people would have truly got the message. You may think my approach is simple-minded and naive, 
Like if you want to change the world, then why not quit and feed the hungry? But people for millennia have needed music to survive, and that is why I've promised John that I will not feel guilty. So play your favorite Beatles song and make the subway fall in love. They're only You've been listening to a podcast from the 2021 Auckland Writers Festival Waituhi or Tāmaki. You can find a range of other festival talks, interviews and discussions on iTunes, SoundCloud and on our website, writersfestival.co.nz.